0: It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. One of the most famous people who we know very little about has died at the age of 80. Charlie Watts, the great drummer of the Rolling Stones, passing away. And the tributes are just pouring in from across the musical world and elsewhere. The surviving Beatles, Ringo Starr, paying tribute uh, to his drumming colleague. Paul McCartney he made a video that he posted very touching about what a great guy. Uh, Charlie Watts was uh, every rock drummer of any notoriety uh, praising Watts' skills. But I thought a Washington Post headline kind of captured it. Charlie Watts was a gentleman in the world's most dangerous band. Um, One of the reasons we don't know very much about Charlie Watts, unless you're a real Stones aficionado, is he um, wasn't flashy. He didn't lead a raucous lifestyle. He was not, you know, Mick Jagger or Keith Richards. He kept a relatively low profile. He was a very sharp dresser. He was really into jazz. He was married to the same woman since 1964, so he wasn't out, you know, doing the thing with groupies. Um, and yet, if you look at the you know, incredible catalog of the Stones, you know, he just provided that driving beat, but not with, you know, um, incredibly innovative solos, not that he couldn't have done that, he just didn't call a lot of attention to himself. He just, he played to the music, he kept all the great Stones hits, he kept them moving forward, uh, you know, with just the right amount of percussion or, you know, when to hit uh, the bass drum or the hi-hat, whatever it was, the snare drum, Uh, Charlie Watts uh, leaving us at the age of 80. Meanwhile, in the Jeopardy saga, first of all, i got to say this, Uh, So Mike Richards, you know, gets the job. He's the executive producer. Then he loses the job because he's got a history of saying um, not very uh, flattering things about Jews, about women on a podcast, uh, not to mention a couple of lawsuits against him when he produced The Price is Right. So Sony Pictures basically nudges him out or he nudges himself out with the approval of Sony Pictures. But he gets to stay on as the producer of the show of what he did was awful enough that he had to give up the promotion he'd been granted. Why have him still running the show behind the scenes? I don't get it. Now the media spotlight has shifted to Mayim Bialik. She was named as the guest host. She was going to host some primetime specials, clearly a consolation prize. At the moment, she's filling in because they don't have a permanent host because of what happened to Richards. So now a lot of past comments that Bialik made about vaccines have been unearthed by the media. Uh, She had to put out a statement through a spokesman saying she has been fully vaccinated for COVID-19 and is not at all an anti-vaxxer. But in People Magazine 2009, she said she's part of a non-vaccinating family. Um, In 2020, last year, she did a video on YouTube saying she delayed vaccinations for reasons you don't necessarily get to know about. She said some children have allergies to certain vaccines, and she believes the U.S. administers way too many vaccines. Um, she also told Yahoo that she has a lot of questions about the vaccine industry and I, and a lot of questions about the profits involved. Well, look, she's entitled to speak her mind. But clearly, in the current pandemic environment, uh, that's controversial. I don't think anything's going to happen to her, but certainly uh, a lot of attention to Bialik on the subject of vaccines. Meanwhile... This is just to Tunes. The Washington Post issuing a correction yesterday for a humor column about Indian food. If you know the Post and the Post magazine, Gene Weingarten has been writing a humor column there for decades. Very funny guy who I know quite well. Uh, you know, sometimes his zingers hit the mark, sometimes not. But he does satire, he does humor, he does shtick. You got it? So here's what he wrote trying to make some people laugh. Apparently, that's not allowed anymore. The Indian subcontinent has vastly enriched the world. Uh, it's given the world chess, buttons, the mathematical concept of zero, shampoo, modern-day nonviolent political resistance, shoots and ladders, the Fibonacci sequence, I don't even know what that is, rock candy, cataract surgery, cashmere, USB ports, and the only ethnic cuisine in the world insanely based entirely on one spice. If you like Indian curries, yay, you like Indian food. If you think Indian curries taste like something that could knock a vulture off a meat wagon. You do not like Indian food. Okay, you can get the tone of it from what I've just read you. Well, now the paper is running a correction saying, well, it's not true that the only ethnic cuisine in the world is insanely based on one spice. Um, it's just not true. If, um, a previous version of this article, and they have to actually changed the piece, said it was based on one spice. Um, in fact, India's vastly diverse cuisines use many spice blends and include many other types of dishes. I just like, that's the sound of me slapping my forehead. Uh, you can't make fun of anything anymore without somebody coming after you. All right, let's go to the news. Number one, Afghanistan. So it was delayed by about five hours yesterday, which tells you that behind the scenes, President Biden and his team are scrambling about what to say, what the speechwriters are saying, and so forth. He's supposed to speak... Uh, about noon Eastern, and then it was 1 Eastern, and then it didn't come on. You know, the cable networks all have, like, soon, Biden speaks on Afghanistan. And then finally, it was announced that he would speak at 4.30. 4.30 comes along, no Biden. 5 o'clock, no Biden. I mean, sometime after 5, maybe closer to 5.30 Eastern, the president finally spoke. And what he said had leaked out hours earlier, which is he's not going to change the August 31st deadline, for the U.S. to completely pull its military out of Afghanistan. Now, this is huge news, of course, because although I have to say the pace of evacuations has uh, ramped up dramatically uh, as much as now 20,000 people a day uh, being airlifted out of Kabul, uh, about seventy to 80,000 total since this effort began. So I have to credit Uh, the Pentagon and the administration for doing that. But obviously the reason they're in a position where they have to do that is because of the complete botching of the evacuation uh, and the near instantaneous collapse of the Afghan government, which we propped up for so long with President Ghani fleeing the country, and the uh, collapse of the Afghan military, which in the end turned out didn't want to fight, despite the tens of billions of dollars the U.S. spent training, the soldiers and so forth. So uh, the problem with the August 31st deadline is that we're not going to be able to finish the job. There's just no question about it. We certainly are not going to get out uh, many of the Afghans who risked their lives and their families' lives, working as interpreters and security people and so forth to help uh, the American military during this 20-year war. And I don't know. I hope we get all the Americans out. It's not clear to me. The situation is kind of murky. So this is a setback because the Taliban had said this is a red line. If you cross it, there'll be consequences. And Biden appears to be caving. His explanation yesterday, the growing risk of terrorist attacks. The sooner we can finish, the better, Biden said. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops. But that gets around the fact that, you know, the Taliban said you've got till August 31st. That is, what, a week from today? Uh, It's a very, very, very tight time frame. And by the way, in this speech, Biden did not even mention the fact that the Taliban regime has now said it will no longer let Afghans leave the country, period, um, starting yesterday. That's a huge setback. uh, And the president just pretended it didn't happen. He didn't deal with it. Um, So, you know, he's very much in the mode now and some of his allies in the media are starting to say, well, you know, they're doing a really good job and they're making the best of the situation. And some of that is true and some of that is spin. But, you know, he he doesn't really grapple with the fact that this is a dire situation. Obviously, he doesn't want to signal weakness, but I don't see how you can simply say, okay, we'll be out of there in a week. And at the same time, Contend and having your press secretary Jen Psaki contend that we'll get out every American who wants to come out. Maybe we will. I hope I'm proven wrong. A couple of congressmen went over there on an unauthorized visit, including Democrat Seth Moulton, said uh, there's no way to finish the job by August 31st. Here's Democratic Senator Gene Shaheen tweeting, Um, We must extend the withdrawal deadline and work with international partners to ensure all allies find safety from the Taliban. Arbitrary deadlines and bureaucracy are no excuse for lives lost. A lot of Democrats are not backing their president on this. Some of the European leaders told Biden yesterday they want to extend the deadline. But that has its own risk. What if the Taliban stop cooperating? They could say, uh, starting today, no more flights, no more Americans get out. What if they take hostages? It's not like the U.S. has a lot of leverage in this awful situation. Finally, some numbers here. Defense officials saying yesterday, and they've been asked this by reporters every single day. I have a whole column today on Fox about the very aggressive uh, and confrontational reporting and commentary on Biden and the Afghan mess. There's a USA Today poll out uh, showing that his approval rating has gone way down to 41%, disapproval 55%. and, And in this context, Finally, American officials are saying there are about 4,000 American passport holders plus their families have been evacuated. They, oh, but we don't have the, the total number. They, they, they've estimated ten to 15,000 Americans were in Afghanistan when the Kabul government fell. So if that's, let's just say it was 10, that means less than half of Americans have been evacuated. It's at least under 6,000. Could be another... 10 plus thousand, and that is very troubling. By the way, Andy McCarthy has a piece in National Review saying, uh, taking issue with Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State. Uh, McCarthy writes Donald Trump's major criticism before the latest last couple weeks was that his successor wasn't getting out of Afghanistan fast enough. He derided President Biden for extending the withdrawal deadline. So Pompeo isn't even defending some of the most troubling aspects of the Trump withdrawal agreement. For example, the Afghan government, the now-collapsed Afghan government, completely cut out. The U.S. just directly negotiated with the Taliban. The Afghan uh, legitimate government had no role. Also, um, what McCarthy describes as astonishing, uh, letting out the 5,000 Taliban prisoners while the negotiations were going on, uh, knowing full well that some of these jihadists would... would immediately return to the battlefield. Now, Pompeo's major point and Trump's major point is theirs was a conditions-based withdrawal. And if the Taliban violated the agreement, the U.S. withdrawal would not have happened. They would have stopped. But uh, McCarthy writes that this is defied by the facts. Uh, Pompeo does not dispute that the Taliban repeatedly violated the agreement. While that was happening, the Trump administration responded with a dramatic drawdown, our force-level Plummeted from over 13,000, that was back in February 2020, when the thing was signed, to around 8,000 and then down to 2,500. Yes, there were some airstrikes and so forth, but in other words, despite Taliban violations, Trump wanted out. By the way, most of the uh, American people want out too, but did they want the withdrawal to take place in this calamitous way? Uh, I think the answer is clearly no. All right, number two, uh, the House. Uh, finally approved late Monday, uh, the $3.5 trillion bill. This would be the reconciliation bill, the bill that would pass only with Democratic votes uh, that would have an enormous amount of spending for social safety net, education, child care, health care, paid leave, tax increases on uh, more affluent people, wealthier people, and corporations. But the drama here was these nine Democratic moderates, so-called moderates, uh, saying they weren't going to vote for this thing, and Pelosi had to negotiate with them, Nancy Pelosi. It uh, passed on a 220 to 212 vote, so it was pretty tight. Um, and the, the moderate faction, led by a New Jersey congressman named uh, Gottheimer, Josh Gottheimer, they're celebrating because what, here's what they got in exchange. Basically nothing. Uh, what they got in exchange was Pelosi is committing to have a vote on both measures. That is the bipartisan infrastructure deal, which is about a trillion dollars, and this, you know, humongous three and a half trillion dollar Democrat-only bill by September 27th. Well, she's going to try. Obviously, whether she can pull that off is another question. So um, the fig leaf here for this compromise, because in the end, the moderates were going to cave because they're not going to bring down the Biden presidency. And this is, domestically, this is the battle. Um, So they're saying, and also they got a promise to be included in the drafting of the $3.5 trillion bill. Well, I mean, all members are included in the drafting. So I don't see where Pelosi gave up much of anything. Yesterday, Pelosi said, a win? We're not talking about a win. We're talking about passing a rule. And some of the progressive members said afterwards that Pelosi had simply sort of restated her position that they would try to pass both bills by the end of September. I'd probably be willing to take a bet that that won't happen just because of the way Congress works and the inevitable delays, and there'll be more people trying to blow this up, and there'll be problems in the Senate and all that. But that's where it stands now. The mini-rebellion by House Democrats has been quelled for the moment. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Now, this is interesting, having to do with... Remember um, when it started to come out that the Trump Justice Department, but this is revealed after Merrick Garland took over as attorney general under Biden, Trump Justice Department had, without the knowledge of the news organizations, um, looked at the phone records, and in some cases, email records of journalists who were digging into, uh, I guess, for the most part, not exclusively, the Russia investigation. This included journalists from CNN, journalists from the Washington Post, journalists from the New York Times. And uh, Biden and Garland then made a show of saying, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We're changing DOJ policy. And uh, we're going to try to get, if we need information uh, that journalists are involved in, we're going to do it without doing the sort of go to, secretly go to a court and get a subpoena. You know, it's perfectly legal to do it, but of course the Obama administration did the same thing. And that was one of the few issues on which the press pushed back hard against Barack Obama and Eric Holder when they did that to, at the time, Associated Press, uh, my former Fox colleague, James Rosen. So now the new twist here is that there's a court case in which this new Garland policy has come under scrutiny, and it involves Infowars, a talk show host on the uh, very conservative conspiratorial website, Infowars. Um, The order was made public yesterday, U.S. magistrate, and said that prosecutors refused to answer on the record Hmm. whether they had complied with the department's updated media policy when seeking a warrant to arrest a guy named Owen Schroyer for his alleged involvement in the January 6th riot at the Capitol. So the, the twist here is he's a talk show host. So either you say, well, he was at the Capitol, he did terrible things, we're arresting him, Or you say, yeah, but he's a talk show host, so he's kind of a journalist, so we can't, can we do that? Can we not do that? Do we consider him a journalist? Here's the quote from the judge. Uh, The events of January 6th were an attack on the foundation of our democracy, but this does not relieve the Department of Justice from following its own guidelines written to preserve the very same democracy. Uh, Prosecutors uh, had provided enough evidence to warrant uh, a criminal trial of Schroyer, but wouldn't lay out their reasons for determining that he wasn't a member of the news media. So that's the thing. I mean if you if you if you cast it too broadly, then anybody, you know, you can just you can have a podcast that's heard by three people, you can say, I'm a journalist. I'm a member of the media, therefore you can't arrest me even though uh, I took a club and hit a police officer over the head. I mean obviously if you can <laughs> engage in clearly criminal conduct you can be arrested but then there is this media exception I think the media exception really just goes to questions of surveillance and obtaining phone and other email and other electronic records um, but anyway so is Infowars part of the media that's really the question here uh, the Department of Justice appears to believe as the judge that it is the sole enforcer of its regulations that leaves the court to wonder who watches the watchman. Now, prosecutors in their own uh, response did a filing saying it's not appropriate for the court to look into how the government in- implemented its internal policies. So it's interesting in terms of Infowars. I think we will also see uh, other cases like this where there will be involving a blogger or a podcaster or a contributor to a website that where most people would say, well, that person is not really a journalist, but the person may claim to be a journalist. And then how does DOJ uh, follow its own rules? And how do they get to decide? And then did they have to account? Any kind of public accounting? How can a court review whether what justice did was um, lawful according to its own policies without the information? So we'll see how that plays out. All right, let's move to number four and the coronavirus. Um, we're still at about 151,000 daily new cases now. Uh, so the situation is not great. Uh, who would have thought in the beginning of June, when it would seem like we had this virus pretty much under control, that at the end of August uh, we would be in the midst of this surge, which, of course, has sparked a whole new round of debates about masks and schools and kids. And with the FDA finally belatedly approving the Pfizer vaccine, Um, A whole lot more companies I just saw today, CVS, uh, CVS Caremark, which is an insurance company, Aetna, another giant insurance company, all uh, issuing vaccine mandates for their employees based on the FDA action. But the reason I bring this up is, where did COVID come from? Did it come from the Wuhan lab? So President Biden's director of national intelligence delivered a report yesterday to the president, which according to news reports, was inconclusive about whether or not COVID-19 came from the Chinese lab. Now remember, in order to kind of tamp down the controversy when suddenly based on reports in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, the entire media world, which had been ignoring or ridiculing or dismissing as a wild-eyed conspiracy theory, the notion that uh, the virus did originate in the Wuhan lab, suddenly decided, well, yeah, I guess we've got to take this more seriously. So Biden ordered the 90-day intelligence review. It was a way to kind of buy, buy time and to show that the administration was no longer writing it off. So the report comes back, 90 days, not a lot of time to prove this kind of thing, and uh, they can't figure it out. Uh, New York Times, the inquiry examined data from a virology research institute in Wuhan, has yet to answer the biggest outstanding question about where it came from. Its absence of conclusions underscores the difficulty of pinpointing the source of the virus, particularly given China's refusal to continue to cooperate with international investigators. So you're asking a bunch of spies to resolve what's essentially a scientific question. They have very little access, first-hand access, they have no first-hand access to the lab. They do have; they have no cooperation from Chinese scientists or the Chinese government. So I could certainly understand uh, why this would be a very difficult nut to crack. Meanwhile, uh, Johnson and Johnson uh, is telling, uh, will tell the FDA, FDA, and has publicly now announced that a booster shot from J and J dramatically raises the level of antibodies against the coronavirus. So J and J is trying to get permanent approval. Uh, from the FDA, as is Moderna, and all three, you know, with the Biden administration now saying that it will allow booster shots, encourage booster shots beginning, I think, September 20th. um, You know, all of these major companies that make the vaccines want to get in on this. Obviously, there's some profit motive involved, but also, you know, I would say it's good for America, except, you know, this is one area where the scientists are really split. Where some are saying these boosters are just simply not needed, and others, and maybe the Biden administration, out of an abundance of caution, is saying, "Yeah, it'd be a really great thing if everybody could get a booster." We, you know, certainly with flu shots and other things, I mean, boosters are routine. You know, you get you get it, and it wears off after a while, or it's reduced effectiveness, I should say. And every study seems to show reduced effectiveness. It may still be ninety percent, but it's not ninety-five percent. It's not a reason not to get vaccinated, but no one—you can't expect a single shot or a single or just two shots. To last forever—that's not the way vaccines work. Uh, just another news note here uh, about Trump and Biden Supreme Court yesterday uh, refusing to intervene, refusing to block a ruling from a federal judge in Texas that now requires. Well, this will be end up being appealed again. The Biden administration to reinstate the Trump program, the immigration program, forcing asylum seekers. We're arriving at the US border to await approval in Mexico. It's the remain in Mexico policy. So the Supreme Court, it was not a signed order, said the administration, that is the Biden administration, had appeared to act arbitrarily and capriciously, that's a big phrase in the law, in rescinding the program. Um, now, three liberal members, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, said they would have granted a stay of the ruling. So it's a procedural ruling. In other words, while you fight this out, In the courts on the substance, um, do you delay enforcement of the original Trump program? Well, according to this Supreme Court order, remember, it's a 6-3 conservative court, and that's the way it lined up here, uh, the Trump program, keeping asylum seekers in Mexico on that side of the border, is back in action. Uh, And that's obviously a big disappointment to the Biden people and to the liberals. All right, story number five. The California recall, I'm just back from uh, Los Angeles, as you may know, and I got to tell you, I mean, the media, I'm starting to see more and more stories. I was onto this a couple of weeks ago talking about how Larry Elder, the black conservative radio talk show host, could become California's next governor if, if Democratic incumbent Gavin Newsom is recalled in the middle of September. And I explained at the time, and all these stories are catching people up on it, that the recall is a two-step process. The first question on the ballot is, should Gavin Newsom be recalled? If he wins 50% plus one vote, he stays as governor. If he drops below 50%, then there's the second question, who do you want instead? And there's this whole list, and of that whole list, because the Democrats didn't really run a strong backup candidate because they wanted to line up behind their governor, uh, Elder is kind of leading the pack. He's at like 20, low 20s, uh, which is ordinarily, I mean, this is the Republicans' best chance to take over the state house in this bluest of blue states. Possibly ever, because ordinarily, you know, even in like a three person race, you got to get close to 50%. Here, you could, somebody could win with 25%. But the point I was making being out there is nobody's talking about the recall. I didn't see anything about the recall on local TV news. I mean, there may be an item here or there, it's in the newspapers, certainly. I didn't, just in talking to people, it's not a big topic of conversation. Um, There was one demonstration in Santa Monica that I saw, which was anti-vaxxers. They had a whole bunch of people with signs and cars were honking their horns. That's what's hot in California. The recall still amazingly is kind of below the radar. Now that's a big problem for Newsom because a lot of Democrats have already voted by mail ballot, um, far outpacing Republicans and independents, But it's kind of like the Trump election. Everybody knows that on election day, which, you know, it's going to be a lower turnout than in a, a normal November election, many more Republicans will show up. And they will all, most of them probably, vote to recall Newsom. So Democratic enthusiasm is pretty low. Media visibility is pretty low. And yet, if you're Larry Elder, man, if you had a rough couple of weeks uh, you know, he's always said controversial things. I, I wrote a column on this a couple weeks ago. I talked about it on this very podcast, uh, you know, things that he has said, uh, whether it is about abortion or vaccines, uh, you know, are all being used against him now. And, and, and Newsom is trying to do this and, and many in the press are trying to do this. So leave that aside. You have two other recall candidates, uh, former San Diego mayor Kevin Falconer and Caitlin Jenner was going nowhere calling on Elder to get out of the race, that's not going to happen. You have the Sacramento Bee editorial board calling on Elder to get out of the race, that's not going to happen. But here is what has been reported. Politico reported that Larry Elder's former fiance, a woman named Alexandra Datig, had alleged that he emotionally abused her and threatened her with a gun. She's a conservative commentator and blogger. She was with him for several years. Uh, She has made these allegations, which Elder has denied, but obviously this is raising lots of questions about his personal conduct. Then uh, news outlets, again, who all seem to be on a tear against Larry Elder, uh, are saying things like, employers should know if their female employees plan to have children, okay? Smart women overlook boorish behavior by men, okay? Women know less about political issues than men, and women exaggerate the problem of sexism. This is all, you know, when you're a radio talk show host, you know, you're throwing bombs, and and he did a lot of rhetorical bombs on the air. Um, And so uh, here is uh, Caitlyn Jenner saying, drop out, you're as bad as Gavin Newsom toward women. Um, Now, uh, an email from... An elder representative says over 1.7 million Californians have called for kicking Gavin Newsom out of office. I guess that's the number that signed the recall petition. This campaign will be focused on that rather than participate in a circular firing squad among the replacement candidates. Larry Elder went on Sean Hannity's show and said Democrats are scared to death. They know if California can elect a conservative governor like myself, that any state can. Well, there would be huge national implications if Gavin Newsom is replaced by Larry Elder um so clearly there's a media campaign now against larry alden now some of this look i mean if his former fiance says this that's fair game for reporting she's saying this on the record if he has made these uh provocative slash inflammatory statements over the years that certainly should be part of any public debate but i do get a sense of panic among the media elite that the state could flip that the great state of california could flip From a very liberal Democratic governor to a very conservative Republican governor, who, by the way, if he were to be elected, um, would be a triumph for black conservatives who are generally in the minority, most but not all Uh, African Americans tend to vote Democratic. Uh, and he would instantly become a national figure, a guy who was always big in California and had a bit of a national reputation, goes on TV a lot and all that. Uh, So the question is, can Newsom pull it out? And he's going to have to generate a lot more enthusiasm than I saw when I was in Southern California. Thank you for listening. As always, you can subscribe lots of places here, including Apple iTunes, and we'll be back tomorrow with more BuzzFeed.